Almost Happy New Year to you all. We're almost there. It's a little bit quiet this morning, just calling out the obvious. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm all right with a down Sunday every once in a while, right? Recharge the batteries, keep everything a little bit subdued. Um, just by way of a poll here, how many of you will be awake at 12.01 on January 1st? Crazy people everywhere I see. All right. How many of you gave up on that a long time ago? Now we're talking. All right. If you can't see all those hands on camera, then uh, know that the uh, the sleeper inners, the going to bed early people have it. So uh, speaking of being on camera this morning, we welcome our uh, friends from New Hope uh, Evangelical Free Church in Solon. Um, because uh, Pastor Blaine has come down with what so many of us are coming down with and passing around as the season of gift giving is upon us. And so um, he and his uh, even more brilliant wife, Sandy, came up with the idea that they would tie into faith services this morning for their church service up in Solon because it was difficult on a Saturday night to find someone to fill the pulpit for them. So I am sorry you get me instead of Pastor Blaine this morning, folks in uh, in Solon. But uh, we are excited to have you along. And uh, if you don't know the church we're talking about, because maybe you're relatively new to faith, we have a sister church of our brothers and sisters that are um, way up the road a piece, as we country folk like to say. I'm not country folk, but I'm pretending. Um, and uh, up by past Skowhegan and so into Solon. And that church has been going strong now for a couple of decades. The Lord's been blessing. And uh, Pastor Blaine and Sandy are from among us and uh, answered the call of God to go up and lead them and shepherd them and stuff. And so we just continue to hear great things. And so we're glad that they're tuning in. I, I, I told myself, don't say tuning in. Nobody tunes into anything anymore. Couldn't help it. There's a couple of things I've said that give away my generational. Like last week, I was talking about evil can evil. Come on. Who knows who I'm talking about? Half of you. And some, I just saw some younger people raise their hands. So you have good parenting, I see. A stunt man from way back in the day. I'm barely old enough to know who evil... No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm quite old enough. I've, I've seen the stunts live on the three channels we had to watch back then. Anyway, enough of all of that. Um, I, I just want to, you know, welcome us to this new year coming up. We are getting back into the text in Acts chapter 19. Again, if you're not familiar with how we do things, maybe you're new to faith in the last couple of weeks, but uh, we take the books of the Bible, the individual books contained in the scriptures, and we teach through them somewhat randomly as far as which ones we're in, but we try to go start to finish through that book. And so our series, uh, for the better part, well, actually for more than a year now, has been uh, the book of Acts, which comes after the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Acts captures for us the birth, the growth, the ignition of the gospel fire that set the world ablaze. A, a, a fire that has now been continuing for 2,000 years. And despite the signs of opposition and the persecution and the setbacks that we have from time to time, this movement isn't going anywhere until the Lord raptures it home. 
the flame is still burning, still igniting, still finding, finding the driest kindling to set ablaze, and it is having its effect. And so after these two millennia, God's word is still on the move, and we are honored and privileged to be a part of that journey as well, to be a link from the church of the past to the church of the future. So we get to be in this place faithfully as we um, celebrate the story of how it all began. But before we get started in our text, I just want to have us take a little bit of end of year inventory to take a moment to pause. If you're like our family, you've had a lot of things going on, a lot of um, uh, parties and gatherings and um, upheaval to schedule and those sorts of things. It's difficult to find a little downtime and have some reflection. And so for the next 40 minutes or so, this will hopefully be an opportunity to engage in some of that necessary reflection that allows us to just kind of be bare before the Lord and say, you need to see into my heart and mind. But, but he already sees it and knows it, so take that extra step of being willing for him to reveal what he sees. That's the more painful part. And so as we take this end of your inventory, think about... If you can somehow magically transport yourself back to January of 2023, what were your expectations? What accomplishments did you think would come your way or that you'd be able to achieve? What disappointments did you not see coming or failures that you are all too familiar with or remembering now? What expectations did you have for this last year that maybe came to fruition or just never materialized? For all of us over the last couple of weeks, none of us saw the kind of destruction and storm and setbacks that we had a couple of weeks ago. So we can all chalk that into the category of the unexpected. So maybe you look back and you say, okay, I, I thought this would be my year. I thought this would be the year things would come together. Or I thought I would get better at X, Y, or Z. Or I thought maybe that it was going to be a complete disaster, but the Lord saw me through and things went so much better than I could have anticipated. I don't know what your reflections are, but I know it's important to take them. I know it's important to leave these things before the Lord. Why? Because we're going to go through it all again. We're going to start a new year. And, and I, I know that every, a lot of people say, I don't make New Year's resolutions. We almost can't help think about the potential of what could be or the things that we want to do differently, even if we don't call them quote-unquote New Year's resolutions, there's something about the way that our holiday schedule ends at the end of the year and our new year begins. It's almost impossible not to think about closing a chapter here to open a chapter over on the other side and what possibilities could come. I personally feel like I'm a little bit of both. I don't necessarily write a lot of things down, but my, my wheels are always spinning. What do I want to see happen? What do I want the Lord to do? What do, what do I want to avoid? Those kinds of things. And so maybe you're in that same boat. Perhaps you're also in the same boat of going through a natural cycle of, I mean, like we've been eating, right? Last couple of weeks. Speaking of a natural cycle, you get to a point. I, again, I think there's some logic to this mindset we have about the January diet craze. It's not just big diet that's out there trying to get your money. They're, they're doing that. Don't get me wrong. But there's something about this instant guilt or overwhelmingness of our, our actions, or our decisions where we're like, oh, I got to make some changes. And isn't there something weird about our mind and our flesh and stuff that it just instantly wants to do the better thing as soon as you feel either fully satisfied or tilt that beyond there and say guilty for how you've conducted yourself, say, at the dinner table? 
You know, I'm always saying things out loud, like I will never eat again. I know I don't mean that, but I do feel that way. At the time, I can't comprehend ever having the kind of room ever again to be able to eat another bite the way I just devoured and embarrassed everybody around me watching me throw things around and just shove it. No, I don't know. Maybe it's not as bad as I picture it, but certainly the way it feels. We have a natural cycle. We go through our guilt or our realization. We wake up to what's just happened. Who am I? What have I just done? And then this frustration, though, turns into a sincere but a very misguided motivation. And again, if you're aware of the cycle, your motivation lasts for how long? I don't know what your answer is, but it's different for everybody. Some people are like, I give it a good solid day and I'm back to binge eating. Or some people say I can go a couple of weeks and make some changes and do the whole like, you know, drink a lot of water and all that sort of stuff and purge out the system. But then it doesn't last very long. Some people say I can create new habits and give it the right amount of time. I've studied the science. I know how long you have to do it. I don't know where you're at. But most of us go through this January diet mindset when it comes to all new changes in life. All of these opportunities that a new year affords us. So the natural pattern for us is to give into our flesh, but then we feel guilty or we feel defeated by the consequences. Often we've heard it said, you know, they don't say it, but we really see it in the actions. I'm sorry, really, that I got caught. That as those those consequences come in, that's where we've realized, okay, now I've really gone too far because I've been busted. Sometimes our reaction then is to starve ourselves of pleasures because we say, I don't deserve it. I've failed. I can't do so. I just run the other way. It's like like those crash diet kind of mindsets. If we're just using the food metaphor still to say, well, I I, I don't want anything and no sugar, no anything like that. And I just wean myself or just go cold turkey right off it. And then you say that that's often a bad decision because you end up craving it in the worst way. And then when you finally, your will breaks down, you just consume, right? It's like a chocolate cake here and a pot. Sorry, I shouldn't bring those things up. So the I'll never do that again quickly turns into a lack of adrenaline and motivation and we start to crave those things. And then we return to behavior when our resistance is thin or something goes wrong in our life and we say, well, I deserve this. I, I was set out to do this until this happened to me and I'm, I can't control my circumstances, so I need some comfort. That's why I think the food metaphor works so well for us. But you can expand this into all things that our hearts and bodies crave. We have a bit of an issue, though, as we are here as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. We come to some very definite language in 2 Corinthians 5 that says that if we are this, then things will be different. And as scripture says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has, it's not is passing, The old has passed, but behold, the new has come. And we're sitting there thinking, man, if that were true at the flip of the calendar, then I would say, well, this year is new and I'm a new creation and I'm not going to give in to any of these temptations, these downfalls, anything like that, because I'm a new creation. And we have a gospel now that's spinning around us in our church circles and our popular culture and everything that treats Jesus like a, like a, a life motivation coach that says, because his power is in you can do it. And so we go around going, I'm a new creation. I'm a new creation. I can do it. I can do it. We try to will ourselves and only to find that we fall back into the same exact trap as though we had tried one of those crash diets that lasts about two weeks. 
How does this keep happening to us? We want to live like new creatures. I think this is the real change that happens in the heart of the believer is that God changes our will. And he says, I've given you a new nature so that now what you desire is something far greater than what you've surrendered to. But often we live like the old us, those old cravings for the sugar and everything like that come back and we lose the willpower to fight. So we've approached our spiritual life. We come into a new year and say, Lord, I'm going to give you this and I'm going to do this for you. But it turns into the same feeling of a New Year's diet syndrome. The gospel has so much more for us. The gospel is different. The gospel is not a motivational strategy for us to just will ourselves into doing better things that make us more godly. It's deeper than that. It's more powerful than that. And surprise to say, it has very little to do with you and what you bring to it. The gospel is different. An old preacher, a very highly respected pastor and theologian, his name's uh, Donald Barnhouse, and he was a pastor in Philadelphia for a long time. And uh, he tells a story, or the story was told of him. I'm just going to read it here for you, for you. Shortly after the armistice of World War I, Dr. Barnhouse visited the battlefields of Belgium. In the first year of the war, the area around the city of Mons was the scene of the Great British Retreat. In the last year of the war, it was the scene of the Greater German Retreat. For miles to the west of the city, the roads were lined with artillery, tanks, trucks, and other materials of war which the Germans had abandoned in their hasty flight. It was a lovely day in the spring. The sun was shining, not a breath of wind was blowing. As Dr. Barnhouse walked along examining the German war material, he noticed that leaves were falling from the great trees that arched above the road. He brushed at a leaf that had blown against his chest. It became caught in the belt of his uniform. As he picked it out, he pressed it in his fingers and it disintegrated. Dr. Barnhouse looked up curiously and saw that several other leaves falling from the trees. But it wasn't autumn. There was no wind to blow them off. They were the leaves that had outlived the winds of autumn in the frosts of winter. Now they were falling, seemingly without cause. Then he realized the most important force of all was causing them to fall. It was spring. The sap was beginning to run. The buds were beginning to push from within. From down beneath the dark earth, the roots were taking life and sending it along trunk, branch, and twig until that life expelled every bit of deadness that remained from the previous year. It was, as a great Scottish preacher termed it, the expulsive power of a new affection. When we were studying Acts 19 about a month ago, we saw that something was starting to take root in the, in the launching of the church. There was a great purging that was taking place as a movement of the Holy Spirit. You might recall that people were taking Paul's handkerchiefs, his sweat rags from the work he was doing, making tents, and they were saying there's power in this, and they were bringing it around, and actual healings were taking place. The Spirit was moving in very unique and powerful ways. There were exorcisms taking place where demons were fleeing at the hands of the disciples of Jesus Christ, and so some of the Jewish posers, the ones that were making a living off so-called exorcism, said, we want to get in on that act. So they started claiming, by the name of the Jesus that Paul talks about, you get out of them. And they said, we don't recognize you. And they attacked the, the, the same uh, posers that were trying to peddle exorcisms. And of course, when the community saw where real authority lied, that it was in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, 
they started turning from their mild affections and sometimes deep entrenchments in the occult and the other gods in the the um, the practices that they had that were against the name of Christ. And you might remember our text said that they brought all of their books out and they would uh, accumulate to be millions of dollars worth of materials just burned in the center of the city. It was a demonstration of the inward change that was taking place, having a very profound impact on who they were on the outside. But do you see the order that was taking place? Change happened from within as a demonstration of the Holy Spirit, of a move of the Holy Spirit, so that things happened as a result rather than the opposite way. I'm going to will myself into doing better. I'm going to be a better person so that God will be happier with me, move through me more, and make me more productive for his kingdom or in my life. It's the opposite way around. You might remember, too, that we used the example of the Welch Revival, where as the Holy Spirit was moving through um, the, the great growth of the people coming to Christ, that, that it started having an adverse impact on the production of coal. And we said, that's a weird thing to have happened. But the donkeys that they used and the motivation that they used to produce the coal and to deliver it were only motiva- motivated by cursing. That's the language they taught those donkeys. But now their hearts have changed. These men of God said, we can no longer use that same language. We don't want to be speaking like that. So they had no way of communicating to these donkeys, thus slowing down the production of coal. We're getting a little closer, I think, at what Luke is trying to capture, both in that first part of chapter 19 and in the section that we'll be going in. What is he talking about? Well, Paul says it in Galatians 5. We've had this passage on repeat now through several instances. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's an order to this. We give our lives to the spirit's control and then the desires of the flesh begin to take a back seat. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. He really wants us to understand they're not compatible together. This isn't a, a, a life in the Christian life of convenience that I, I have my sin where I want it and I have my Holy Spirit where I want it and those two kind of exist in the same place. And he says, no, they're incompatible to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And you remember we said, look at that phrase differently because often we think the Bible's condemning the things that we want to do. But I think you could look at that and say, the thing that you really want to do as a new creation in Christ is to have a life that is in the spirit and these things of the flesh are holding you back from being who you really in your core want to be. So we come to our text and I want to be able to extract from it in the lesson, lessening time that we have together to share with you my prayer for the people of faith, our brothers and sisters in Solon, really for all the children of God under the teaching of his word. That as we walk in the spirit, we will be able to, one, dismantle the stronghold of idolatry. Number two, we will be able to demonstrate impeccable character before all audiences. And number three, learn to live quietly and patiently waiting on the Lord's strong hand for his protection. Let's see them in our text this morning. I'm going to read it start to finish. It's a bit lengthy, so bear with me and uh, try to pay attention. All right, so we're in Acts 19, beginning in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, 
he himself stayed in Asia for a while. There's a lot that's happening here. There's a lot that it says about Paul's comfort with all that the Lord's doing. We don't have the time to really examine this. It's just setting the stage for where he's going to be and what's going to happen. Verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But Paul wished to go in among the crowd. The disciples wouldn't let him, and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his, sent to him and urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some, that is in the crowd, cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And I love this line. And most of them didn't know what they had come together for. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. This isn't going to be popular with them because Jews believe in one God. So this whole lot of trinkets, many gods, isn't going to be good for them. So... um Let's see, he says, and Alexander motioning with his hand wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried. Two hours, they all cried with one voice, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Talk about boring for one, but passionate on another hand. Makes you wonder what's fueling this. Verse 35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, see, town clerks have some authority. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians as temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them, bring, let, them, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The call for us, the prayer that I have for us is to dismantle the stronghold of idolatry first and foremost. We saw that Demetrius starts off by saying, hey, look, this is an attack on our business. We we have the great temple. We have the, the gods that are here. And Paul's running around saying, gods made by hands are not real gods. This is going to be a threat to us, our livelihoods, our area. All of Asia depends on this because they all worship Diana. She's known in the Roman language, Artemis here in the Greek. 
So Luke records for us that there's no little disturbance, there's no little business that's coming from this. What I see taking place here at the beginning is a very honest inventory of the presence of idolatry. Demetrius is throwing it right out there. He says, hey, this is going to hit us in the wallet, you know. And you'd think someone should be a little bit more savvy and say, we care about her worship. He eventually gets to that, but he starts right off with saying, this is going to cost us, you know. And if we don't get ahead of this, this is going to change all of our livelihoods. There's an honesty in that that I believe that we could all take a page from and say, you know, we have to recognize that these idols, whatever the trinkets are, however they're made, however they come to us, they are present. They do exist. They do draw us. They do tempt us. And so many times in the church, we have this um, uh, unwillingness to share that, yes, they do have my heart as well. I'm not allowed to admit that. What would other people think of me? They're judging me or they're thinking or they don't have that same problem that I have. And so there's a lack of an honesty in the inventory that we could take of the presence of idolatry. Ephesus is wearing it on their sleeve. They're proud of it. This is the thing that is generating their income. It's, it's made them important to the rest of the Roman Empire. This Artemis is, we've heard of her already. She's the goddess of the hunt, which is a strange title. I don't know all the background of why that would be. I know that she's seen as a protector for young women because she's seen as a fertility goddess. So those wanting children would then uh, worship her deity for um, that kind of what they would see as that kind of blessing or something. They believed her, be, believed her to be the daughter of Zeus and the twin sister of Apollo. So they really upheld Artemis. There was nearly 40 shrines to her all through the empire. But Ephesus was HQ. Ephesus had the temple, one of the seven wonders of the world. You have something like this. It's a chief source of not just income, but of pride. And, and, and he says, he goes, Paul's been kind of infecting all of Asia with this nonsense that, that the gods that are made by hands aren't real gods. And if you people don't wake up, this temple is going to be demolished to nothing. Our livelihoods will be ransacked. There'll be nothing for us to show for it. He presses in a little bit more to the greater cause here. He's stirring up their emotions in patriotism. Stop me if you've heard this before. That everything that people want us to do, every crowd they want us to run in and participate in, they appeal to our broader senses as though sometimes we're thinking, if I don't do something, then it's going to be the end how easily stirred up we can be. And it confuses us because we say, well, I want to make a difference. I want to be a part of a cause. There's something in me that stirs, but I, I don't know if this is it. He says to him, he says, our trade will lose credibility. The temple and Artemis will lose her magnificence. Well, we can't let that happen. I've got to protect her magnificence. Well, what has she done for you? Well, I don't know, but she's really important. She really matters. She give you that baby? Well, I don't know, not necessarily, but she matters to us. It's a really big temple over there. I don't know if you noticed. Got to protect it at all cost. Idolatry is a very, can be very subtle and can be very overt all at the same time. Somebody defined idolatry as objects or people that are not God, but worshiped as though they are. I thought that was a brilliant definition as I looked at the person who wrote that they are not christ followers I'm like how did you get that insight but it hasn't changed your perspective on who god is objects are people that are not god but worshiped as though they are 
You'll know when there's an idol in somebody's life when it gets removed. We can have good things taken from us and we feel sad, a little frustrated, a little inconvenienced by it. But you take away one of those ultimate things, one of those things that we bank on, that we trust in, that we don't think we could live without. And what do we do? We freak out. We melt down. You'll know the definition of an idol once it's removed. In the ancient culture, like I said, they wore it on their sleeve. They had a God for every aspect of, of life. They said, we have a God of work. We have a God of fertility. We have a God of pleasure. We have a God of play and war and all of these things. We know who our deities are that we go and subscribe to in order for us to get the result out of them that we demand or that we want. Well, we're in an age of science now, and those little trinkets don't move much of our culture or our society, so the gods must be gone, right? We know that's not true. Where ancient culture had a more overt um, approach to idolatry, we are a little bit more subtle. Ours are a little bit more below the radar. So we also have a God of work, but we look at it as achievement, maybe becomes workaholism. Or we say, well, it's good to have a family, but then all of a sudden our family becomes our sole identity. So its success and preservation is our ultimate drive and motivation in life or intimacy. And we've got a lot of young attendees in the audience this morning, so I'll just leave it at intimacy. You guys fill in the blanks. In all the places and strange ways that we can um, uh, uh, pervert that and to see that out to its nth degree. Leisure, power, let me go back to leisure because I really feel like that's one of our greatest strongholds in all our culture. It was back to a book I read it was from the 80s. Some of you will remember a secular author, but it was, I think, simply called Amusing Ourselves to Death, really making that case that we, um, we uh, consume so much more because of the, the age of all of the uh, information technology that we have than what we were created to absorb. And we carry on so much of the weight of the world because now we can see it. Well, then that was written well before the Internet was thought of, well before Al Gore, Al Gore pulled it off. And I just want to make sure you're still with me. Like I said, it's quiet in here this morning. You ever want to get a reaction, throw out a little political humor and everyone's like, take a side, right? But this leisure aspect is something that has just become so prevalent for us. I confess my same uh, uh, draw to it as well. What are you going to do in your downtime, right? Turn your brain off. But we never are, are we? We're never fully passive in all that we consume and all that we observe. I think there's an opportunity for us in the new year to look at that and say, Lord, what am I going to do differently about that? How are you going to be more prevalent in my thoughts and my minds and my direction so that I'm not drawn to all of that checking out that I am so tempted to do? Demetrius said it. He goes, this guy's running around saying that gods made with hands aren't gods. Can you believe it? What an imbecile. But it's true, right? We know the Bible says that God has said there's no other God uh, above me. So we know the scripture backs that up. But even just the logic of that statement, how can the created thing assume the role of the thing that made it? How can the created thing become greater? And we're like, well, we're in a day of AI and stuff. Or someday the robots will take over. And I'll let you chase that conspiracy theory. But the reality is that what is created cannot overpower the creator when we're talking about the things of God. 
He is the ultimate maker of everything. As we saw in the scriptures over the Christmas Advent season, that there wasn't anything that was made that wasn't made by him. And so, yeah, Demetrius is basically preaching a message. Though he's saying it sarcastically. He's saying he's going around saying that gods that are made by hand aren't real gods. And people are like, it's actually kind of brilliant. And they're starting to see that. And not just in Ephesus, but in the whole region, trinket sales are going way down. They're taking out their little pie charts and their graphs and all these kinds of things. And they're like, ever since Jesus was preached, sales are way down. What are we going to do? So I have a question for us. Right now we see industries as being so big. They're in the billions of dollars. And we're thinking, what in the world can we do about this? What impact could we make? What industries could we be threatening to shut down if God's people alone just allowed for the dismantling of the stronghold of idolatry in their heart? I'm including myself in this question is to start seeing this as not just a boycott of a particular institution who happens to step in some trouble, politically speaking, but actually thinking, Lord, the things that grip my heart always seem to be attached to a dollar sign. Someone's always punking me and making money off of my affection for this thing that's robbing me of life. Why don't I just develop a new affection for something better? If we were to do that, how could we start to shut down certain industries? We've seen it, haven't we? The whole, what is it, go woke, go broke phrase and stuff like that. You're seeing companies take a hit for all these things because they're making certain stances and cultures like we don't like that. So they stop buying their thing and everyone's like, all right, now we got to close plants and shut down and everything. So we can't look at this and say, well, it's not possible. But maybe it doesn't have to be so temporary. Maybe it doesn't have to be so mob driven or crowd driven. Maybe it could just be a change from me as an individual. My heart doesn't need to keep getting swept up in these things. This is taking an honest inventory of the presence of idolatry. Believe it or not, I've got two and a half other points to make in five minutes. So let me cruise. We take an honest assessment of its power because idolatry is a strange mixture of strength and weakness. Remember, take an ultimate thing from somebody and we freak out. Really, the strength of an idol is not in the object, but it's in the desire of the worshiper. The little trinket's just a little trinket. Paul makes that case in the Corinthians. He says, some of you are offended because I'm eating meat that was once offered to idols. The steak is good. I don't care who thought they did a little incantation over the steak. There's nothing living in that steak other than some good juice. But if you're offended because you are somebody who used to offer meat to idols and everything, I'm not going to share that as a meal with you. I don't want you to feel like you're still living in the past. So I'm going to forego my right to have this beautiful steak when I'm in your presence. But don't think I'm eating something that has an enchantment over it. It's not the way it works. It's just a thing. It's in the desire of the heart of the worshiper that makes it bigger and more powerful, gives it its grip on our hearts. Well, we know what the crowd did. They were enraged. They were crying out. They were dragging disciples into the Colosseum. Might have been 20,000 seats and nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. So who knows if it filled up, but it was getting bonkers in there. And then they chanted that strange thing for two hours. Text says they didn't say anything else for two hours. She's really great. We think she's cool. Two hours. Venomously, I'm sure. A sustained reaction revealing their idolatry. There's something interesting, though, about 
Luke even including this story because most of the accounts that we've read have ended with some kind of an evangelistic message and some kind of response that they people hear the word of God like in the last story was they all came to the center of town and they burned all their um, witchcraft stuff and everything like that they responded you almost get that kind of happy ending aspect to the story and and this does have that but in a strange way why is Luke including this story? Some have commented that they think it's because it's revealing the violence and chaos that adultery, I mean, adultery that too, but idolatry produces. That there's a violence and chaos that comes, even though it's promising comfort, it's promising peace. You know, like our little thing says, hey, you've had a hard day. You know, you've got a hard life or something like that. Just, it's not, this isn't going to own you or ruin your world. And what happens? It always ends up doing that to us, right? It promises comfort and peace and yet reveals itself to just bring violence and chaos to our existence. And so seeing this on a macro level with this mob reaction helps us to go, this is kind of what happens in my heart too. I start clamoring and freaking out. No, God, you can't take this from me. And I start shouting weird things and I could go on for hours about it because he took it from me. How are we not the same reaction of this mob crowd? What we have to understand is that mobs, as we just break it down here, they're usually ignorant of the agenda, right? We've seen this a lot recently where you can have thousands of people participate. And if you ask somebody somewhere halfway in the crowd, what are you marching for? What are you? I actually don't know. Not quite sure. The text even says that there are plenty of people, right? They were like, I kind of don't even know what we're here for, but it seems important. And it seems cool. And I'm making a difference. What kind of difference? I'm not really sure. There was confusion. They were saying one thing and then another. They didn't know why they were there. Most mobs have a worse bark than their bite because of that same thing. Most will follow the strongest leader available. Whoever makes the best case will get their energy. And most mob participants will wake up later and say, I didn't think I'd take it that far. I didn't know I could get swept up so easily. Ben Franklin said, mobs are a monster with heads enough, but no brains. All of this is important for us when we're examining idolatry because the voice of Christ should never be hijacked by mob rule. You and I represent the calm and and stable truth of who Jesus is. That tactics and manipulations and those sorts of things are not required of us to make an impact for the gospel of Christ. We trust him to do his work as we remain faithful. Second prayer for us is to demonstrate impeccable character before before all audiences. Let me just say quickly as we look at how Paul reacts to this. I mentioned to you the size of the crowd and the threat and the mind-numbed yelling and chanting it had to been a scary environment, Paul's first reaction is, let me get in the center of this and defend my friends. This is incredible. Other cooler heads around Paul said, this isn't the time. We're not going to let you do this. They're not listening anyway, and you're too important to the cause and everything like that. So he capitulated to that, but his energy and his desire was to get in there and defend his friends. This is what character does. Character is on the ready. Character is, is, is ready to be mobilized. And when we lose our character, we, we disqualify ourselves from action because we're caught feeling guilty. We're caught being useless and, and catching cobwebs and that sort of thing. Character is on the ready and, and able to be mobilized at the drop of a hat. And this is what Paul is demonstrating for us. But it's also recognized. Paul's character was recognized to a broader audience. And I think this is something we should hear. 
and not dismiss. You caught the fact in the text that it said the Asiarchs were his friends. And the Asiarchs are officials. They've been elected, but they're very wealthy, powerful elites. They're snobby. They have their own system and everything. But for some reason, they liked Paul. They weren't followers along with Paul. He hadn't converted them. But there's something, we don't get a lot of detail, but there's some reason why they defended and said, don't let Paul go into that crowd. They're going to tear him apart. We need him. I don't know where that comes from, but it's an interesting thought that here these people are that don't claim to be followers of the way, which is what the Christian life was called then. And yet they recognized that something must have been happening that was humble and respectful and it earned their favor even though they didn't agree. Warren Wearsby said that the church ministers by persuasion, not propaganda. We share God's truth, not man's religious lies. Our motive is love, not anger, and the glory of God, not the praise of men. This is why the church goes on, and we must keep it so. Again, I wish I could camp out on this a lot longer than than I'm able to, because this is such a message for us going into 2024, is it not? We've got some weird times ahead. And the voice of the church has been monopolized, it's been compromised, it's been, oh, I'm forgetting the word, but it's been, I don't know, I used it too much, I guess, over the last few years, so I'm forgetting it. But we join into things and phrases and callings and movements and everything that hijack the truth of who Jesus is, the character that he is, the grace that he has. As we say, well, we can't afford to be Christians in this moment, we just got to win at all costs. So we lose our integrity. This is not the way that the church survives. Thirdly, that we'd be called to live under God's protection. There's some trust that goes into this protection because all false worship will have its destruction. We don't necessarily have to go out of our way to destroy everything we disagree with because it's been promised to us in Revelation 21. It says the one who conquers, that's you and I, The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the point of the hellfire and brimstone literal preaching that you're hearing this morning is that we don't have to be the ones to rain down judgment on everybody that opposes us. God's got that in hand and our hearts break for those that would ever have to receive it. And so it should affect the way that we conduct ourselves around them and how we live and move and breathe and have our being as the scripture says, because we will be protected through his plans for an ultimate protection. We can trust his timing and his hand for all of that. No false God will survive the fire of God's righteous jealousy. So our faith in his strong hand and his mighty rule will keep us in the fight for the long haul. And as I mentioned, the story ends very anticlimactically. Riots, chants, freaking out, mob rule, all that sort of stuff, just to kind of someone end the whole thing on a policy violation. That's really what this is. Uh, I'm just looking at the Roberts rules of order here, and we're in violation. We're going to get in trouble with the magistrates. Let's shut this thing down. And I was like, well, all right, let's go home. Nothing to see here, people. 
If that doesn't speak to the common grace and the sovereignty of God, this lightning bolt from heaven didn't have to come and shake the whole thing and shatter it all. God defeated the enemies of the disciples with some Robert's rules of order. Things that were well in place that they had decided on in generations past for no apparent reason or knowing or giving any credit to the Lord. And yet he uses those things to solve the issue. Give God space to work his will through his creation. Even, yes, those godless elements of creation that don't acknowledge him or surrender to him, he can use it all, as Romans eight twenty eight tells us, for his glory and for our good. All right, we're getting into the new year, and I'm just about done. We've got to get back to this. What does this have to do with New Year's resolution stuff? We go back to Galatians five sixteen. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do we do that? It isn't through the starving ourselves of uh, through our guilt because we feel overfed and now I'm going to diet and I'm going to binge. There's something better. Our missing ingredient in our starving is the goodness of Jesus. He is the better. He is better than all others. Hebrews even as a theme, that book in the New Testament pits Jesus above all others if you ever want to study that. And because he's better than he's given us a better grace that leads us away from destructive elements of our flesh. Everything that you and I love and crave that robs us of life and keeps us from him is a lesser example of what he created in us to desire the better version of. All the things that we uh, sin in our intimacy as a cheap replacement of what he provided for mankind in beauty and in holiness. In our food intake, all these other things that we would call vices and stuff all come from a place that he desired. He built in us a good desire that we could worship him in and we want a good thing too badly. We turn it into a demand which then becomes an idol and becomes our small g God in our life. So all of this is coming from a better place and his good grace leads us back to finding out what those origins are. So the steps to walking in the spirit is first that we need to trust, trust that we have a father who knows what we need. And every time I get ahead of his plan and go give myself to these cheaper offerings, I'm I'm doubting that he can take care of me. Instead, he has forgiveness for me for for days and days. Every morning, his mercies are new upon every failure. I can come to him. He restores me. But he also provides for me the joy that my heart really wants that these idols continue to crush in my life. And then I learned to obey. I practiced the Savior's resurrection power over my impulses. The Lord says that because I've beaten death on the cross, these things only have the power that you give it. It's an empty trinket. It's a piece of me. And so because somebody claims some incantation, you say, I'm powerless against it. Now I have this little trinket on my mantle and I have to worship it. There's no power in it. And 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 the resurrection of Jesus Christ has proven that. It only has the power we give it. Then we learn to replace. This is the harder part. Please don't go into 2024 starving yourself of pleasures. Don't go into 2024 saying, every time I chase a pleasure, it always comes back to bite my ankle like a bear trap. It's because you're chasing the wrong ones. God has never intended for us to be like these Stoics or the ones that have to prove just by suffering and misery. We whip our backs and we say, I got to prove that I love God. He never wanted that for us. He brought us into a better life of pleasure in his grace and in his uh, freedom. 
So when we walk in the spirit, we dismantle the strongholds of idolatry. We demonstrate impeccable character that catches the eye of those around us. And we learn to walk in the trust of God's protective hand to fight for us. See, the force of the spirit living inside and coming out is like that sap on that tree, knocking that little leaf off, which is a far greater force than our own feeble wills that will expire in a few weeks anyway, right? All right, let's thank the Lord for this. If you would please stand. Let's pray. Thank you for your patience, knowing that you have to go into, all well, a third of you have to go into a late night tonight. The other two thirds are, you're going to be okay. All right. Lord, I want to thank you, Father, for bringing us, your people, together today. Thank you, Lord, for seeing us through a difficult couple of weeks. And Lord, for those that are still um, yet to put the pieces of their life fully back together, Lord, I pray that you continue to be guiding and, and providing and faithful to them. But Lord, I pray too that we would get rest from all of our events. We would get rest from all of our concerns and worries that we would learn to put our trust and faith in you. There's so much, Lord, about this life that is just wrapped up in surrender and it's the hardest thing for us to do, it seems. Trusting that you're our good provision. We don't have to strive or go off your path in order to find satisfaction for our souls. We can stay on that straight and narrow and continue to follow you, Lord, and we enjoy a great and rich fellowship with you. We enjoy a peace that comes from knowing we're in your care. So, Lord, I pray that we would choose that path. Help us to replace all of the things that break our hearts and hurt us, Lord, with the rich nutrients of your spirit so that we would learn to crave the other things less and less. Be patient with us, Lord. We pray we thank you so much, Lord, for your mercy. We pray for your resurrection power to do an incomplete overhaul in the lives of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.